invite you to turn into your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. And then also take your handout from your bulletin. I've got a couple extras up here if you don't have one. Anyone need a handout? All right. Mark chapter 15. Mark devotes six of his 16 chapters to the final week of Jesus' life. And this chapter 15, he devotes primarily to the last few hours of his life. And what we're going to to see today is the rejection of Jesus by Pilate and others. When we look at Pilate, we often think maybe he was a Christian. He, He seemed to see Jesus as innocent. But you know, it's not enough to see Jesus as innocent. You have to have a belief in what He has done. You have to consent to it with your mouth. And you also have to have an unreserved trust in His finished work. Pilate had to ask the same question that we ask. Is the Christ the Son of God? Or is He simply just another revolutionary Was he just a man thirsty for power? Pilate was thinking of these things, and certainly we must ask these same questions ourselves. In the end, Pilate equivocates. He does not take a side. He He passively accepts Jesus. But as we've seen before in Herod and in the rich young ruler and in others, passive acceptance is active rejection. We'll see this today with Pilate as well. We'll see Pilate struggle for the truth as this passage unfolds. And so let's look at this these uh, few verses. Mark chapter 15, we'll read chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation, and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in in, in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him! But Pilate said to them, Why? What what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. They dressed him up in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him. 
And they began to acclaim Him, Hail, King of the Jews! They kept beating him, His head with a reed and spitting on Him and kneeling and bowing before Him. After they had mocked Him, they took the purple robe off Him and put His own garments on Him and they led Him out to, be crucifi- to crucify Him. There's no room for the King of Kings for these people. Just like at the beginning of Jesus' life, there was no room for Him. He comes to the end, and with these Jewish and Roman leaders, there is no room. As we study through this passage today, I want to show you at least four ironies that pop up in this story. Before we get there, let's look at the first ten verses, and that we see there that the innocent man is charged. Verse 1, we find the setting that it's early in the morning. This is Friday of Passover, the, the day of Passover. Remember, their day began at sunset the night before. That's when they, they had their Passover meal. And later on in the day, later on this evening, even, even to what we are reading, the Passover lamb will be sacrificed. You see the agenda of the Jewish religious leaders in verses 1 through 3. We studied them uh, two weeks ago. Uh, in verses 53 through 65 of chapter 14. But we see that they begin in verse 1 with a consultation. They have a, a deliberation about what they should do with this man called Jesus. This deliberation is recorded for us in Luke 22, verses 66 and 71. It was simply repeating the same charges that they had already trumped up against him, that he was a blasphemer. Maybe they waited until the morning, Friday morning, because they wanted to make sure that it was legal. But uh, ironically enough, they had already broken the rules with regard to holding a trial at night. They should not have done that. They should not have come to a decision the same day. So maybe they were waiting till the next morning, saying, now we have a new day that's dawned and so we can make this decision. But at the end of verse 1, we see that they deliver him over to Pilate. Why did they do this? Well, if you remember from two weeks ago, we learned that the the Jews were giving given a lot of authority. They were given authority to do to enforce all sorts of laws and um, and carry out their own punishment. But one thing that they could not do was condemn a person to death. And so, although these Jewish religious leaders wanted to, they did not. They could not. And so, they handed him over to this Roman governor, Pilate who was really their leader, although they didn't want him to be. And um, and they wanted to make sure that Pilate, this Roman governor, would understand that this man was worthy of death. And so their job in verse 3 is to convince him, convince Pilate that Jesus is worthy of death. Look at verse 3. The chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Before the Sanhedrin, the the charges were primarily religious in nature. They were, you have said this about yourself in relationship to God. How can this be true? Here, before Pilate, they, they give him political charges. You see, they, they understand that if they bring all these religious charges to Pilate, Pilate doesn't care about religious things. So instead of bringing up the fact that he is a blasphemer, they call him the king of the Jews. You see, he is setting himself up against your authority, Pilate, and ultimately against Caesar's authority. 
So this would have been an affront to them. We find out more about their accusation in Luke 23.2. Listen as I read. It says, We found this man perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King. And then in John chapter 19, verse 2, we read, If you let this man go, this is the, the religious leaders to Pilate, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Because whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. See, they don't bring anything up about blasphemy. They don't bring anything up about all these things that he said about destroying the temple and building it up three days, which they were talking about earlier. All they bring up is that he claims to be a king. If he claims to be a king, then he doesn't like Caesar. We see the craftiness of Pilate in verses 4-10. through Pilate was the Roman governor of the southern region of Israel, Judea. And he was the governor from 26, AD 26 to AD 36. And he was probably in Jerusalem, not his normal place to stay, but he did have a palace there. He probably was there simply to maintain order as all these Jews were coming in from all over Israel to celebrate Passover. The motivation of Pilate seems to be sympathetic. He seems to be concerned about Jesus and about these false accusations. Look at verse 2. Pilate questioned him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. Then verse 4. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed. Why would Pilate be amazed at the silence of Jesus? Pilate recognized, and we recognize, that if Jesus didn't defend Himself, then Pilate would have to rule against Him. It would be like standing in a court and having all these charges brought against you, and yet you, not, you make no defense for yourself. So Pilate is thinking, I can't do anything for you unless you defend yourself. Say that this is not true. So after we see this happen in verse 5, what we don't have recorded for us in Mark but is recorded for us in Luke, is that Pilate now sends Jesus over to Herod Antipas. Herod was the Tetrarch of Galilee. and Herod was also here during, during Jerusalem's Passover. And he sent him over to Herod because he wanted to pass the buck. Pilate didn't want to be responsible for condemning this man to death. So he sends him to Herod, hoping that Herod will come down with condemnation on him. But as we know from Luke chapter 23... Jesus is sent back. He doesn't say anything before Herod. Herod is wanting to hear this man speak, remember, because Herod enjoyed listening to John the Baptist speak. And so he thought, oh, this is the Jesus that he was talking about. Let's find out about who this man is and what he does. I want to hear more from him. Instead, Jesus doesn't say a word. And so he's sent back to Pilate for the third phase of the, of the Roman trial, which begins in verse 6. Pilate now receives Jesus back, and then verse 6 reads, Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner. And then we find out more about what the crowd is doing. And Pilate says in verse 9, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Now, it seems as if the crowd is the one that's asking Pilate, Pilate, will you release for us Barabbas? But Turn over to Matthew chapter 27 because what we find is that Matthew records more details for us. 
And it's not actually the crowd who brings up this idea of releasing Barabbas. Matthew chapter 27. We see that Jesus is before Pilate in verses 11 through 14. And then verse 15, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over, that is, the chief priests. So in other words, what's happening here is that Pilate is bringing this other man into the picture. They never thought of Barabbas. Pilate's the one who brings him into the picture and he says, listen, I can release one prisoner for you and I'll give you a choice. Would you like to be this this guy over here? He's kind of innocent. doesn't look like he's done anything. Jesus. Or this guy. You know him. We'll, we'll learn more about him here in Mark chapter 15. Turn back there. And so what Pilate is doing is he's working, he, he's picking the worst prisoner possible. The worst of all my criminals that I have under my charge. I'd be willing to release him for you. Or you can release this innocent man who, who's not going to harm anyone. So in order to understand Pilate's motivation, you need to understand a little bit about Barabbas. Most of us know that Barabbas was a robber and a murderer, according to John and Luke. He's probably a Jewish revolutionary wanting freedom from the tyranny of Rome. And so he, he took part in this insurrection. See this in verse 7 of chapter 15. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. So Pilate thought, if I can just... See, he's trying to be passive in this whole thing. He's trying to say, well... If I charge Jesus with this crime, then maybe they'll accept for him to be released and, and for Barabbas to stay uh, in prison. But what Pilate didn't understand was the influence of the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 11. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. So Pilate's question here in verse 9 is this. Wouldn't it be right for you to allow me to release the king of the Jews? Wouldn't that be the best thing for you? Or would you rather have this other murderer to be released? And what he didn't understand was the nature of the crowd. He knew why the chief priests had handed him over. That's what verse 10 says. It says that they handed him over that is Jesus, over to Pilate because of envy. They didn't like this man. They knew that this, he knew that this man was an affront to their leadership, to their spiritual lives. Paul, or Pilate recognized that all of these charges against Jesus that the religious leaders were bringing were all trumped up charges and that they were false. He saw Jesus as an innocent man and yet he wanted to be passive. This was his passive way of acquitting Jesus. See, I'll charge him with what you want me to charge you charge him with. I'll be happy to do that, but maybe the crowd will release him and, and, and get me off of the hook. 
And we find in the other Gospels that he, he, he said at least three times in John's Gospel that this man is innocent. So, if, if the crowd would have allowed Pilate to release Jesus, then Pilate could have washed his hands of the whole thing and yet still maintained the Jewish ruling. But the, the people didn't bail him out. And this leads us to our first irony. The one who is known to be innocent is condemned as guilty. The one who is known to be innocent is condemned as guilty. The innocent man is charged. And the guilty man, Barabbas, in verses 11-15, through 15, is freed. We see the hatred of the crowd in verses 11-14. through 14. Verse 12 says, Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him who you call king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him! See, for the Jewish people, Jesus was an offense to their way of life. Because He laid out these high spiritual requirements. And He abhorred their sin. And because He was so adamant about their sin and about the way that they were living, He was an offense to them. But it wasn't just the religious leaders who rejected Messiah. Luke records that there were at least three classes of people, that there were the rulers, the priests, and the people. They all rejected Jesus. You see, the crowd, by nature, didn't like Caesar. They didn't like to have Roman rule over them. But they welcomed uh, kings who were opposed to Caesar. And what's amazing about this crowd that is down here below while Pilate's asking them what they should do with this man is that many of the people in this crowd were probably the same people that we see in Mark chapter 11. Turn there with me. Mark chapter 11. This is Jesus and His triumphal entry that was promised for us in Zechariah when He comes into the city and is recognized as the King. Verse 8, And many spread their coats in the road, and and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! This crowd, at this point in their lives, had recognized that Jesus was the King. But as time went on, as they saw Jesus start to descend towards the cross, they recognized that this was not the King that they were looking for. The type of King that they were looking for was supposed to be the King of Israel. He was supposed to remove the Roman rule, the tyranny that was upon them. And He was supposed to bring social and political freedom, and yet now they see Him helpless before this Roman governor and their shouts of Hosanna, blessed be the name of our Lord, turn to crucify Him. Crucify Him. The crowd has changed their alliances. We should not be surprised by this. We see this happen all the time. 
people follow God as long as He gives them what they want. As long as they... As long as He gives them what they expect to receive, to expect that they deserve to receive. When all those gifts start going away, when all those expectations are not met in the way that they, we expect them to be met, then we turn on Him. We would be no different from this crowd crying out, crucify Him. Crowds are fickle in that way. The desire for popularity we see that Pilate has in verse 15 Pilate saw him as innocent. Look at verse 14. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? Why should I crucify him, he says. Instead of giving an answer, the crowd shouts all the more, Crucify him! What's sad about Pilate is he knew very well that Jesus was innocent. It's bad enough to lack the morals to know what is right. But for Pilate... He knew exactly what was right and what he should have done. He should have let Jesus go. How much worse is it for those who know what is right and do not act upon it? This is the, the place in which Pilate found himself. And so he asks, verse 12, what should I do with this man? What, what's interesting is that Pilate, Pilate had whatever power he wanted. He could have released... Two prisoners. He didn't have to just release Barabbas. He could have released Jesus too. But again, Pilate is passive in the way that he deals with this man. He could have released both. But instead, this, we see his motivation in verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Who is it in this story that you that you feel that you are like? Who do you relate to most in this story? Perhaps it is Pilate. You feel like Jesus is innocent, but maybe too afraid to stand up against the crowd. Perhaps you see yourself as a soldier who beat him. I think what Mark is doing, the, the picture that he's trying to paint for us here, is that the person that we are most like is Barabbas. And that leads us to our second irony, and that is the one who is guilty of insurrection is released, while the one who is innocent of insurrection is innocent, is charged, excuse me. The one who is guilty is released, and the one who is innocent is charged. Here we see the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. I'm not suggesting that Barabbas was a believer. What I'm suggesting is that we are like Barabbas in that we are guilty and yet we go free while the innocent one is charged. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The idea of this substitution that Jesus that Jesus uh, did in our place is very prevalent in the New Testament. It is a great wonder to think of the sacrifice that He made on our behalf. That Jesus is condemned as though, even though He was innocent, and He's condemned as though He were guilty, and we are set free as though we were innocent. Maybe to help you understand. 
what I'm talking about, maybe I can use this illustration. This book here represents all the deeds of your life. Everything that you've ever done. All the deeds being written down. And so, if, if my hand represents you and the ceiling represents God, between you and God are all the deeds that you have done. Some of you have a bigger book than others, I'm sure. Perhaps I have the biggest. But our sins stand between us and God. And so we cannot get to God because we have this, this great deal of debt that's been put on our, uh, on our account. And the Bible says that between us and God is the unfavorable debts that we have. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. And so what happens is our sin separates us from God. We cannot get to God because of our sin. And while the Bible says that God is love, part of His love is expressed in justice. And so He hates evil. And so God will punish our sins. We have two problems. That we have sinned and God will punish it. So something has to happen. Some punishment has to take place because of our sin. And yet over here, we have Jesus. And He also had a book of works. And He did lots of things. But He did no wrong. Not only did He not disobey God, but He obeyed God in every way. He fulfilled everything that God wanted Him to. And so between Christ and God was nothing but righteousness. The perfect works of Jesus Christ were between Him and God. And yet, when Jesus died on the cross, the record of our debts was nailed to the cross, according to Paul in Colossians chapter 2. That Jesus now took upon Himself our debts, our book of unrighteousness, so that between Him and God was now this great condemnation that would have to come because of our sin. So imagine taking all the billions of people that have ever lived and whoever will live, Jesus took all their sin upon Himself and bore the wrath of God even though He was innocent. But the great news is that that's not all that there is. It doesn't just now give us a way to God, but also we have Christ's righteousness transferred to our account. And now all of His righteousness is put on us so that it appears to God as if we have done no wrong. You see, we are treated like Barabbas. And that we are, although guilty, we are treated as innocent. We are treated as if we were Jesus Christ. Now we can have access to God. Between us and Him is the perfect acts of Jesus Christ. And so you see the beautiful act of Jesus' substitution on our behalf. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could be made the perfect righteousness of God in Him. Do you see? Like Jesus Christ took our place. So why did Jesus die? He died as a punishment for sin for all of those who trust in His death on their behalf. 
All that you need to do is you don't have to build up enough works to be able to, to do what is what God demands. All you have to do is simply put your faith in Jesus Christ because He's already done enough. You see, you can't do enough to, to get rid of all of your debt. That debt has to be paid for. Even if you put another book of righteousness on top of it, it has to be paid for. The only way that it can is if you transfer it to Jesus Christ by trusting in His finished work on the cross. And if you haven't done that, I would encourage you, today is the best day to do that. Don't wait. You may never do it. You may never consider these things again. So don't wait. The last thing that we see in this passage is that the king is mocked in verses 16 through 20. Mark chapter 15. Turn back there. That the king is mocked. See that this Roman cohort takes him to the praetorium. The praetorium was the governor's palace, verse 16. The soldiers took him away into the palace and they called together the Roman cohort. The soldiers that were there took him and brought in all the cohort, which is 600 soldiers, about one-tenth of a legion, probably the soldiers that were stationed there in Jerusalem. And everything that you see in verses 17 through 20 is meant to mock Jesus. First of all, in verse 17, they dress him up in purple. As you know, purple is the color of royalty. It was at that time, certainly. And so they dressed him up in this mock robe as if he were the king. They put a crown of thorns on him, not necessarily for the purpose of torture, although it was torturous to have a crown pierced into his skull. But it was more for mockery. Say, oh, that's quite a crown that you have if you're supposedly the king of the Jews. Verse 18, we see their, their call out to him. Instead of, Hail Caesar the emperor, they say, Hail king of the Jews. What kind of king would not have his soldiers fighting for him at this time? Verse 19, we see that they beat his head with a reed, probably a mock scepter. Here, let me take this scepter from you. And they beat it onto his crown of thorns. Verse 19, we see that they spit on him. This is probably a mock, a mockery of kissing a person of respect. You remember like Judas did when he came to, to, to show the, the soldiers who Jesus was? This was something that students did to their teachers. They kissed their teacher as a symbol of respect. And so instead of respecting Him with a, a genuine kiss, instead they spit on Him. Here, let me kiss you in respect. And they, they hurl their spit, spit at Him. And then verse 19, at the end it says, they kneeled down and bowed before Him. So the third irony that we see in the trial of Jesus is that the one who is mocked as king is the king. The one who is mocked as the king is the king. They mock him as if he is not. And yet what they don't know and what they one day will recognize is that he is the king. And that leads us to our fourth irony, and that is those who bowed down to him in irreverence at the end of verse 19 will one day bow down in reverent worship because every knee will bow 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I can imagine that these soldiers will think back to that day when they bowed to Him in mockery. How they must wish that they would have done it for real. That Jesus is God. Of what use is Jesus to you? To the religious leaders, He wouldn't provide confirmation of their sinful practices. To Pilate, He couldn't provide them more popularity. In fact, He would take it away from them if He... If he, uh, if he charged him as innocent. To the crowd, he couldn't provide this political and social reform that they were expecting. And to the soldiers, he was defiant against their country, and so he needed to be done away with. You see Jesus as a helpless victim? You feel that, that even if, uh, if he couldn't even help himself, that that how could He help anybody else? That's what these soldiers are looking at. We'll see this next week when we look at Him on the cross. That they, they see Him. If you can't save yourself, how are you supposed to save us? You said that you were coming to save the world. Or do you see Him as a conquering King? Do you recognize that His greatest defeat that we see here actually is His greatest victory? that He laid down His life. No one took it from Him. He laid down His life for you so that He could be exalted. Why didn't Jesus fight back? I mean, Jesus understood and Mark understood and the readers understand that this is not this life is not all that there is to live for. He recognized that there was more to living for God than this life. If he wanted to, he said he could have called 12 legion of angels and have them come down and wipe the floor with these people. But he knew that as he said to Pilate in another gospel, his kingdom was not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my soldiers would fight for me. He recognized that his kingdom was future. And that His glory was still to come. Pilate would have understood this, that that every king would have soldiers that could fight for him. And so how could he be the king of the Jews if he doesn't have anybody fighting for him? But what Jesus recognized was that His job was not to fight, but simply to lay His life down, follow after His Father's wishes, and be a sacrifice, a substitute for you and for me. Christian, As Christ's servant, your job is not to fight. Your job is not to fight against this world. For our struggle, Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the forces of wickedness in heavenly places, against the spiritual forces of darkness. So take courage, believer. Christ has overcome. That there is nothing in this life that He can't take you through. Trust in Christ. Even when you feel like just knocking somebody else over the head with the truth, trust that that God works often slowly. Just be patient with people as they... uh, We still should give them a sense that this is an urgent responses they need to make, but we also need to recognize that God is the one who has everything under control. 
The Christ's commission for you is to live a holy life and to spread the fame of Jesus who, who knew no sin but became sin on your behalf so that you could be made the righteousness of God in Him. What a great victory that we have in this great defeat of Jesus dying for us. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, it is amazing grace. You did not look at us and see some beauty in us or see even that we had potential, but You saw nothing but defiance and enmity towards You. And we were by nature children of wrath. We hated You. We, We despised You. We did not want You to be our King. And yet, despite our feeling toward You, despite our actions toward You, You chose to work in us through Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. And you took all of the charges that were laid upon, uh, laid that should have been laid on us, and You put them on Your Son, Your most prized possession, and You condemned Him in our place. And because of that substitutionary work, we are amazed at Your grace. We deserve nothing but Your wrath to spend an eternity in hell forever because of our defiance against You. You created us. You were good to us. And yet we turned our backs on You because we wanted to be our own God. The message of salvation is not just for pagans. It was for us because we all were pagan in our thoughts and our minds. So we thank You for Jesus Christ. And what a tragedy it was for Him to be treated as He was in both of these trials and in the beating and the mockery to follow and in His death. But we do recognize that His greatest victory came through the cross and we know that that was His greatest victory because You proved it when You raised Him from the dead three days later. So we pray that You'd help us to think rightly about His sacrifice for us. Help us not to see any good in ourselves apart from Jesus Christ, but to recognize that we needed Him. And and there may be perhaps someone here or, or several people here who do not know Jesus Christ, who are trying to increase their their deeds of righteousness, and yet apart from Jesus Christ, we cannot... So I pray that You would work in their hearts and help them to see that Jesus is the only way. And in place of what we cannot do, be perfectly righteous, that You will accept faith in One who was perfectly righteous. Give us the strength to obey. Give those who have not turned the eyes to see so that they can enjoy the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ in whom we put our hope and trust. We pray also for those here who are believers but are concerned and frustrated with the evils that are going on in this world and maybe perhaps feel like evil is winning. Pray that You'd help us to give give us an eternal perspective that we would recognize that this world is not what there is to live for. This is not our home. 
that we live for an eternal home and that all the, the works that we do following our salvation are being stored up for us and that one day you will be just and you will be seen by all to be just and no one will question your justice. But until that time, help us to trust in You and in Your Word. May we grow to love it and to acknowledge Your greatness and Your mercy more and more each day. And may we see the need of others around us, the deep need for them to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. May we not be ashamed to stand up for Him who laid down His life for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.